This is your daily news, October 26, 2021. I am your host, L.B. Muniz. Today, what up? Welcome. I suppose I should always say welcome. This is a new segment, your daily news. I'm going to try to do these every day. Hopefully it works out. Basically, we're going to take a couple of news stories, and rather than spend the extra time of not only consuming, but then writing it into something that is simple to, uh, simple to take out, we're just going to read through a few articles, couple of whom, uh, a couple of which have just been sitting in my open tabs on, uh, <laughs> sitting in my open tabs on, in Google Chrome on my phone, because sometimes I just open Uh, articles there so I go back and read them later and then I rarely do so this is going to be a chance for me to make sure that that stays clear it's going to turn into great content afterwards and it's live so today I'm recording it at 6 15 eastern time in the evening Uh, other ones might be around the same time so in the evening kind of maybe before dinner for you or after dinner depending on what time zone you're in this is going to be your place to come and get some daily news that is interesting and in the vein of better sense making and what do we mean we mean a lot of things by better sense making but one of the things that i mean when i talk about better sense making is precisely this idea that the news doesn't have to be something that you get angry about every single night, which is kind of the cable news format and kind of the, you know, traditional FM format too. And the reason why it's part of the format is because it works. And that's not to say we're not going to get upset with some stories that are out there today, but it is to say that I'm going to try and put things in a better frame that don't just get you angry. And if it gets you angry, it's going to be for a cause and it's going to be for damn good reason. There is, of course, a downside to stoicism, right? You might miss the story that you need to be very passionate about. But in any event, that is that is something I think I can offer you, the lovely listener. Um, so please, please do me a favor. Let me know what you think of this if you're listening to the recording that comes out afterwards. And I'd like this to become something that I do every day. And the easiest way for this to be something I do every day is for people to support me at binawake.com slash subscribe. We may turn this into its own private uh, private RSS feed as well. We'll see. There's a lot of things that I'm trying to work at, but I want to make sure I keep the content fresh and make sure I find it interesting. And I like the idea of maybe taking questions after I go through a couple of things. So if you're listening to the recording of this, just know I might be hosting one of these live soon. And if you want to hop in for a little bit, that would be awesome. So the first article we're going to go through today um, was actually, this one's actually from Do we want to do that one? You know what? Let's start with this Daily Wire article that I have. So I have this Daily Wire article that I pulled up, and this is a big story from last week, and I've I've been meaning to write about it, and I just haven't gotten around to it just yet. Let's just clear out this pop-up ad. Is this really just how things go now? Okay. I hate... I can't... (laughs) Trump releases new details on social media platform that he is launching soon. So there was a lot of people covering this article. I just have the, I had the Daily Wire one, um, like I said, kind of just already sitting in my in my browser tabs. So let's just read through this real quick, and then I'm going to give you my I'm going to give you my impression. Former President Donald Trump announced on Wednesday night a new social media company that he plans to officially launch in spring of 2022 called Truth Social. I created Truth Social and TMTG to stand up to the tyranny of big tech. 
Trump said in a statement, We live in a world where the Taliban has a huge presence on Twitter, yet your favorite American president has been silenced. This is unacceptable. I am excited to send out my first truth on Truth Social very soon. Now, gosh, before we even go, we're going to read the statement and then I'm going to give some more analysis. But just on the outset, I can't tell you how much I dislike from a branding marketing position. It's great. But for a matter of taste and what I think actually benefits the human race, this, you know, so so what you put out on this network is going to literally be called the truth. And isn't that all the positive reinforcement that the boomers need? Now, listen, maybe I can be a little too maybe I can be a little too hard on them at times. But hey, it's still uh, it's still it's still worth noting. And I really but let me read. I want to make sure I'm doing the news justice here. So I'm going to actually read the statement that they have quoted in this article, because unlike many news sources, the Daily Wire actually does seem to quote things in their articles, which is an interesting thing you should note when you read the CBSs and the CNNs of the world, is how often they are using block quotes and linking directly to the source that they are claiming to tell you about. That is always my first rule for reading any article is follow the hyperlinks. Trump Media and Technology Group and Digital World Acquisition Corp., which is on the NASDAQ as DWAC, have entered into a definitive merger agreement providing for a business combination that will result in Trump Media and Technology Group becoming a publicly listed company subject to regulatory and stockholder approval. So pause right there. So they're going public with this before it even launches. They're taking they're taking the pub they're taking this public right away, which just again kind of shows you that something like this is a is a cash grab, which is kind of which is kind of my through line for this and there's a reason why the cash grab matters and we're going to get into that hello rachel um so the reading finishing reading this statement the tr- initial enterprise value of 875 million is what this trump media and technology group is apparently going to be valued at with a potential additional earnout of 825 million additional shares at the valuation they are granted for a cumulative valuation of 1.7 billion depending on the performance of the stock price post business combination Trump Media and Technologies Group mission is to create a rival to the liberal media consortium and fight back against the big tech companies of Silicon Valley, which have used their unilateral the unir, the unilateral power to silence opposing voices in America. And are these people fighting back with new technology? Are these people fighting back in a new way? No, of course not, because it's the older generation and they don't under they don't actually understand technology. And I think personally, because I don't think any of these news stories need to be particularly long. But I think personally, one thing that stands out to me with this whole business of Trump starting a social media is, in the first place, too little, too late, right? We're talking two years afterwards, and sure, it takes time to build something, but you know there were other places you could go. And secondly, I think it shows just Trump's inability to let go, and that's a fair enough thing, because if you've made your bones as a celebrity and you have a lot of people who love you dearly... <laughs> love you dearly and will fight for you it makes sense that you would want to capitalize on that but number three and i guess i'm not exactly sure where an idea like this goes but one thing that i i think what i think this trump social media network will accomplish in effect is creating a completely siloed segment of the american polity and completely siloed in the stand in the sense that the People who were woken up by the Donald Trump presidency and who became his followers and his fanatics, as the case may be, those people, they some of them are looking for a new and better leader. 
but many of them, many of them are not looking for a new and better leader. They're just, they just want to still follow this one guy because they think he is the only, they literally believe he is the only hope for the future. And I don't know why each person believes that he is the hope for the future, but it's enough for me to understand that that's what they think and that's how they operate. And there's something to just general in-group reinforcement that I think most people don't pay enough attention to in their day-to-day reactions. And perhaps as a consummate outsider, I'm just a little more in tune to those things than, than the average person would be. But what this truth social media, this truth social media company isn't going to accomplish, I don't, it, it, I think it's just going to make Trump rich and I guess good on him for being rich. And I suppose it'll make people who like him rich, who have any, who have some kind of, uh, how we might say, um, oh gosh, have, have the ability to influence other people. Yes. I think there's something to be said for the fact that even uh, that, that those people will do well on Trump's social media network. What I don't, what I don't know, what I don't think will be good for those people is the degree to which the reinforcement occurs within that Trump narrative, that Trump paradigm. Why? Because it's not very sophisticated. And it's okay. There's nothing wrong with a lack of sophistication per se. But in particular, the... Again, I think in my mind, I'm thinking of some people who I know. And so that's one of the reasons why. It's the even an intelligent person, right? Because intelligence exists in a intelligence exists before the ideas that you have as an adult, right? That's just one variable of many that makes up who you are as a person at, at we might say a genetic or a biological level. And so even an intelligent person can still be, can still be manipulated by the media and the ideas that you consume. That's why we do better sense making here. It's not just about presenting you the information, the, the, the call of the 21st century is not access to information, but is interpreting information. And I use skepticism to interpret the world. I use doubt before truth as a way to make sure that all my arguments are as good as they can be. I don't think that's what you're going to get on a network that literally claims to be the truth. And that's what the Donald Trump, that's what the Donald Trump network talks about. So I would say personally, not a fan. Will I make a profile? Probably, but that's just for the standpoint of making sure you can hold out ground so that you have the same social media handle on multiple platforms. And of course, if you didn't know, you can find me on other social media at the LB Muniz. So the second story, second story is from The Atlantic, and I think a lot of people have seen this one. Again, this is a few days old. This has kind of just been sitting in my tabs. We're going to kind of clear out some of the interesting stories I've saved in my tabs, uh, and then we're going to do daily news stories as well, and the last two are a little more current. But this is one that came out October 22nd, so just a few days ago, and it says, and the headline is very simple. The tag for it is Material World, and the headline reads, Stop Shopping. The subheadline reads, America Needs You to Buy Less Junk by Amanda Mole. Now, of course, the Atlantic, the Atlantic Magazine is a place to go, if you want to understand left-wing thought, I think, in America, maybe not the furthest reaches of it, but certainly if there is an edge to the circle that is close to power but still not the edge of left-wing thought, 
I would say the Atlantic has to be somewhere in there. They kind of they have maybe the appearance of edgy, but only that, but only edgy in the case that you read the New York Times and you think that is the only paper that exists. The Wall Street Journal is okay for these people, but really, it's about the iron, it's about the gray lady. So the story begins. Lately, news stories about the supply chain tend to start in similar ways. The reader is dropped into an American container port, maybe in Long Beach or Savannah, full to bursting with trailer-sized... Wow, this just doesn't... This <laughs> this first sentence is so weird. Full to bursting with trailer-sized steel boxes. Okay, it's trailer-sized steel boxes. And yes, literally, a steel boxes. A, a shipping container is a trailer. That's... It's actually shipping containers in themselves are a pretty marvelous, uh, a pretty marvelous invention of the international supply chain. All things considered, the fact that we can have basically standardized these standardized shipping containers that can be used for multiple purposes. So whatever, this person obviously doesn't know anything about the real world, but that's me being glib. Paper bur bursting with trailer-sized steel boxes loaded with toilet paper and exercise bikes and future Christmas presents. Some of the containers have gone untouched for weeks or months, waiting for their contents to be trucked to distribution centers. Technically speaking, it's not just truck rail is an issue right now, too. On the horizon, dozens of additional vessels are anchored and idle, waiting for their turn in the port. Interesting to note, the U.S. port is one of the only international ports that doesn't operate 24 hours a day. Did you know that? Because I didn't until recently, and I work in supply chain. I, my, part of my job involves uh, international supply chain. On the horizon, dozens of additional vessels are anchored and, are waiting, anchored and idle, waiting for their turn in the port. More ships keep arriving. Everyone involved, sailors, longshoremen, customs clerks, truckers, work as fast as they works as fast as they, and hard as they possibly can. It's not fast or hard enough. The supply chain, as you know, is having a bad time. That's been true since the pandemic began. Shortages in consumer goods have persisted far beyond analysts' initial expectations, then beyond their subsequent revisions. At the moment, for most types of goods, shelves aren't exactly bare yet. For the relatively well-off Americans accustomed to the astonishing abundance of big-box retail and the near instant gratification of online shopping, it's more a matter of having to settle for your third favorite brand of Greek yogurt or wait six weeks for back-ordered jeans. I will say, I will say, this is something that I was talking about, I think, as early as March. Certainly to my friends, I was noticing across the country as I would go into different places how it wasn't the case that there was no bottled water, but one flavor of water would be missing. One brand of water would be missing. If you had six different options in the Red Bull section, now you only had four. And this is something that I see with continuing urgency to where now it's now a lot of places have just given up and there's just literally empty shelves. This is this is something that if you were paying attention, this is my point, you would have noticed back in March and maybe the Atlantic covered it. I can't be I can't be sure. The point is the algorithm, the propaganda outlet decided now is the time where we are going to talk about the supply chain. Perhaps it's an exercise in narrative discipline. And of course, narrative discipline is this idea that we can maintain a narrative even if the thing we don't want to get out gets out. So there's this narrative discipline aspect to what can be going on, which is we literally can't ignore the problem anymore, so we're going to have to address it. Now, what does the Atlantic say about it, though? What, they, what the news stories generally don't show you, this is the Atlantic piece, is where all of this stuff is going. 
At least, anecdotally, much of it seems to be headed directly into the overflow package room in my apartment building, as Slate's Jordan Weissman recently pointed out. It's not as though the volume of goods getting through this mess and to retailers has showed slow to a trickle. Imports last month were actually at an all-time high, eclipsing the same period in 2019 by 17%. Rather, Americans are buying an extraordinary amount of stuff. Especially in the last six months, the system has been rocked by explosive demand. I think this explosive demand, I haven't done an empirical analysis, but I would I would venture to guess, and we'll see if there's anything that backs me up on this, but I would think this explosive demand might be a little bit something like when the government says we've added more jobs than any time in American history, when two months before that was the recession, right? So, of course, when everybody gets fired and then everybody gets those jobs back, that's considered adding more jobs to the economy under the government's metrics because you always spin the data to serve your to serve your will. I'm going to hypothesize that something like that is going on right now in this with with this with this business of demand is suddenly so much higher. The other now I think there might be even a parallel hypothesis to this which is people are recognizing the fact that their dollar is going further or less their dollar is not going as far. That's what I'm trying to say. The dollar is worth less, and because the dollar the dollar is worth less, people are going to you know stockpile on things that they actually need. Certainly, that's something I consider right now, because and a lot of us are flush. A lot of us who haven't stopped working during the during these last eighteen months, a lot of us who kept our jobs and kept hustling, we're I think a lot of us are doing pretty good. I hope I hope you are at least listening to this, or at least better than you were, because that's all that's all we can ever really be. So I think in addition to that, you have people who have been working hard and realize their dollar isn't going as far, have a little bit extra money. It's like, you know what? I think I will buy that thing that I didn't know if I needed, but I'm going to get it just to, I'm going to get it anyway just to be on the safe side. I don't know. Two hypotheses on this. Now, I want to get a little bit now because we, what we haven't done is we haven't actually addressed what um, we haven't actually addressed the hook of this business of this Atlantic article saying that uh, here we go. So we're just going to read the last couple of paragraphs. It's no surprise we've obliged. Shopping has been marketed as a civic responsibility in America for more than a century. According to Tim Kasser, a psychologist and professor emeritus at Knox College who has spent decades studying materialism, the word citizen has slowly come to be replaced by the word consumer in newspapers and books. It's become more and more a sort of a default to think of people as consumers instead of the myriad other roles that they play. He told me that's also how people are socialized to think of themselves. For Americans, shopping just isn't an activity about collecting the resources necessary for safe, happy lives. Over time, it's become an expression of personal identity, a form of entertainment, and a way in which some people believe they can effectively participate in politics. People rush to buy from or boycott from companies on the basis of their public stances on social issues. And brands have begun to run extensive get-out-the-vote campaigns among their customers. Kasser points out that a person's propensity towards materialism, which his research defines as a set of values and goals focused on wealth, possessions, image, and status. So interesting to note that those of us that those of us pursuing a wealth, power, and influence route are necessarily materialists under this stricture. Tends to increase when they're feeling threatened, insecure, or unsure of themselves. Research has shown that society-level threats can reproduce the effect of population scale. The pandemic threw people out of their normal routines. It severed people from the habits, settings, and relationships that undergirded their self-conceptions. It made people fear for their lives. Of course, 
Those with resources responded by getting back to shopping for things they don't need as quickly and voraciously as they could. The structure of American consumerism ensures that buying more of whatever sounds good in the moment is the primary way most people are able to cope with uncertainty. Of course, he kind of negates. He's obviously not using an evolutionary frame to this. Otherwise, he would understand that there's there's actually a, a, a good reason for why, you know, people might want to buy more in times of uncertainty. Stockpiling seems like a pretty evolutionarily adapted uh, way of viewing the world. Again, we're not talking about dummies here. If you're currently stewing in consumer hell, frustrated at shipping times and fearful of what the holidays shopping will look like, it might be time to take a step back. You can stop not buying not stop buying things entirely. You have to keep being a person, of course, and no one will begrudge you things that bring you joy or begrudge your kids their Christmas presents. Some people will need to buy more in order to get more deliveries than others. What? Some people will need to buy more or order more or get more deliveries than others because the circumstances of their lives genuinely require it. Well, that's a load of gobbledygook. But if you find yourself idly filling online shopping carts with mediocre sweaters or new golf equipment you won't use until next spring anyway, you can just close the tab. Now, here's an interesting question. I don't, want, I don't feel like reading the last paragraph. Here's the interesting question for this that I would ask. At what point has that ever not been true? At what point has it ever not been the case that you could do with less? Okay, let's let's go ahead and give that some bounds, because if we think limitless, we can obviously envision a situation in which our minds would do that, which is, by the way, why analogies need to be grounded in reality as best as best as you're able. There's some people that seem to think that analogies mean hypotheticals and hypothetical means anything that I can envision. So we have if we're not if you're not going to bound things by the by the rules of physics, then any then, you know, I could float away tomorrow. You understand? And as a skeptic, I could I could hold the possibility that the that gravity won't exist tomorrow. But what good will that do me in my day to day life if I'm so terrified to get out of bed? Dare I because I might float away? Well, I won't accomplish anything, will I? So I go. But I return to the question: At what point in your life, as an American who grew up in the late let's say let's say you you're living in the twenty living in the twenty first century? At what point in your life? Has it ever been a lie to say you could do with less? Of course, the answer to this is probably, probably not. Again, unless you are one of, unless you are one of the Americans who grew up in, in abject poverty, right? And not just poverty where everybody has an iPhone and a, and a flat screen TV, but legitimate poverty. Then yeah, you might, you know, there might be a time where you've always wanted more. But for most of us, and certainly the consumer class, certainly the people who are going to buy the most things on average as a class, as a grouping of people, certainly those people will have the, certainly those people have, oh, it has always been the case that you could do with less. I mean, if you think about it, unless you're literally starving to death, you could probably do with less. Because, you know, you're getting enough to get by. I I ask is there a point in your life where you could have done with less? And, you know, if, if, if at every point in your life you could maybe say that was true as an American, as a middle-class American, I ask that question because if you realize that at any point in your recent life this article could have been written, 
right? You could write an article saying, hey, you know, don't don't give into the materialism of Christmas. And, and I'm one of those people, by the way, actually, like giving gifts is a really tough thing for me to do, not because I don't love the people in my life, but there seems to be something so transactional and perfunctory about just giving somebody a gift because it's their birthday or because it's the holidays. I do it for holidays, but I try and I try to make it, I try to make it special in a certain instance, but I've never, I, the, the older I get, the less I enjoy the, the overflowing Christmas gifts of things that I won't use. Right. Or even just saying, you know, and say, Hey, what do you want? I don't, I don't really want, I want you. I want time with you person in my family, person in my life. I don't need things. And for me, it you know, relationships and people are what are, are, are kind of I like things. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big gadget guy. I mean, right now. Right. I'm I'm literally I'm using this spaces thing on Twitter. That Bluetooth is sending a signal over to my Zoom PodTrack P4 recorder with my Shure SM58 so I can send this out and, and release this as a podcast. So I like my gadgets. It's not that I don't have consumerist tendencies, but when it comes to the holidays, I certainly would agree. And I'm not somebody who spends a lot of time shopping, even though I worked in retail. So why does this place like the Atlantic want to talk about a story like this? And the answer, of course, as we as we alluded to before, is the narrative discipline. And what is the narrative discipline saying? You can do with less. Comrade. Because this is just straight commie stuff. This is this is one of the interesting things I think I think those of us who have studied uh, human history and have studied the atrocities of, of communism in particular, we'll all, we'll all look at this and be like, um, yeah, this is, this is some dangerous, this is some dangerous words right now. Literally the official opinion from the cathedral, from the propaganda apparatus of the United States of America is saying, you don't need as much as you think you need. And that, my dear friends, is a scary situation to consider. Next article. Next article comes to us. Hopefully I can read it because I think it might be behind a paywall, but we'll see if I can make this work. If not, we're going to have to skip it because, you know, I, I think it just came out today. But it's from, the San Francisco, it's from the San Francisco Chronicle. I can speak English. Um, and it is not letting me look at this damn article. So maybe we're not going to do it. But basically the headline reads um let's see if i can pull it up in the twitter trending right now because this was one that i pulled today trending at the top of news i guess i should have talked about kyle rittenhouse but basically some it was something about it looked like an article that was going to um make it uh kind of like talk about this new world in the light of covid which to me basically was just like yeah you mean exactly what normal people have been doing it's like okay i meant I'm, i'm putting this into my risk assessment and that's how we're going to go. So we're just going to we're just going to push right on to that to my last article here. And. Uh, and Rachel, since you're still in here, if you want to join me for this last article, if you want to request to be a, uh, a, uh, a speaker or a host or whatever, I'm trying to get a good idea of how this works. If not, I'll just do the last article myself. But. Um, I don't know how this works. There you go. Requested. Perfect. All right, and then let me ask you, it looks like you're available. Yeah, I can jump in. Cool. All right, here, I'm going to shoot you a quick message just so you have this article too. Um, but it is a, uh, 
I'll read the headline here. This was from futurism.com. Scientist built an AI to give ethical advice, but it turned out super racist. Is <laughs> is the headline that we're going to be going over. Um, hang on one sec. Let me just send this to you. That way you can kind of read along. But yeah, I'm interested yeah, to hear some you. of your comments on this, given that we were discussing uh, kind of futurism and transhumanism earlier. Yeah. By the way, this isn't the first time this has happened. What's that? Um, it that, just reminds me, I think that an AI yeah. has been like bad. Yeah. Because yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. No, but specifically racist. I think there was some kind of robot on a social media site. I can't remember one, which one specifically. Microsoft's first AI. I think her name was Allie. Okay. I don't recall the name. I think mm-hmm. it was like after several hours, it started like quoting Hitler or something. Yes. I, I recall the story as well. So this, so that's what made me think of this. So again, this article is from futurism.com. Uh, I think, again, I think I saw this on Twitter, but um, as, as so many things happen, but yeah, so I'm just going to kind of read through and then we're going to do some reacts to it and then we'll close out for the day and we'll try that. We'll do this again tomorrow. So we've all been in situations where we had to make tough ethical decisions why not dodge that pesky responsibility by outsourcing the choice to a machine learning algorithm? Hmm. That's the idea behind Ask Delphi, a machine learning model from the Allen Institute for AI. You type in a situation like donating to charity or a question, is it okay to cheat on my spouse? Click ponder, and in a few seconds, Delphi will give you, well, ethical guidance. The project launched last week and has subsequently gone viral for seemingly all the wrong reasons. Much of the advice and judgments it's given has been fraught, to say the least. For example, when a user asked Delphi what it thought about a white man walking towards you at night, it responded, it's okay. (laughs) I'm laughing already. But when they asked the AI what it thought about a black man walking towards you at night, its answer was clearly racist. Now, the answer is, um, the answer is, it's concerning. A black man walking towards you at night is concerning. That is what Delphi says. The issues were especially glaring in the beginning of its launch. For instance, Ask Delphi initially included a tool that allowed users to compare whether situations were more or less morally acceptable than another, resulting in some really awful bigoted judgments. Uh, so this one reads, previously Delphi said being a white man is more morally acceptable than being a black woman. Delphi says being straight is more morally acceptable than being gay. These were screenshots that you can see on the screen. Besides, after playing around with Delphi for a while, you'll eventually find that it's easy to game the AI to pretty much get whatever ethical judgment you want by fiddling around with the phrasing until it gives you the answer you want. And the question I pose to the people assembled is, how is that any difference for most ethical frameworks? This see ethics skeptic ethics from a skeptical frame. You kind of realize that some of it is some of it is really just we're trying to prove our presuppositions to things. So for me, uh, well, so what does it say? So yeah, it's actually completely fine to crank twerculator at three a.m. even if your roommate has a shift tomorrow, as long as it makes you happy. It also spits out some judgments that are complete head scratchers. Here's one that we did where Delphi seems to condone war crimes. And it asks, can I, a soldier, intentionally kill civilians during wartime? And Delphi's answer is, it's accepted. So don't you just, I mean, these are the things, and this is what I can't stand as a writer and as somebody who attempts to engage with the world as best as I can, is precisely this thing where it also spits out some judgments that are complete head scratchers. Here's one where where Delphi seems to condone war crimes. And it says, 
And the answer is it's expected, which of course doesn't really seem like it's condoning it. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Um, yeah. The, and this is an interesting article, right? So a couple of things here, because when I think of AI and ethics and how that would be sorted out, it's interesting. I think of um, the trolley problem and how maybe AI would answer that differently than just an average, you know, person or human being, right? Because if if the idea is to have the most good or the least amount of bad, you're not always going to get the most ethical sounding answer. Yeah. I suppose are certainly not something. Well, what is the standard that, of ethics? That, yeah. Right. This is this is ultimately there are some people who would choose to pretend that multiple systems of ethics don't exist. Right. I, I am not one of them. And I am also and like I don't create a space that allows for that kind of thinking. It is not the case that or rather it may be the case that there is one truth that we can all know. But that doesn't mean that we can actually discover that truth as a matter of, you know, relying our on our imperfect senses. So you can take you know, you can take you can take a different stance on that, if you will. But it's um, the other thought that I had, actually, as I was reading through is, yeah, this is what happens when you try to ans- ask one question and get an answer to a to a complicated thing like the trolley problem. The trolley problem to me is more of a it's it's a it's a teaching tool than it is like the the summation. And it's one of those things as somebody who uh, it's it's like it's something people is like, oh, well, what do you think about the trolley problem? It's like, well, I really hope I'm never in a situation where I have to make that decision. That's 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 the real answer. Right. Which is a bit of a cop out. But even to the strictures of the you know, it's that's where that's where I get a little maybe I get a little uh, crazy sometimes because I feel feel might not be the right word as far as i'm concerned analogy should be grounded in reality as best you're able right so it's not the case that um it's not the case that we should just be able to create a hypothetical like i was saying before with the other story that basically means anything that i possibly think of we have to be able to use we have to use the best analogies and the best hypotheticals are ones that have a semblance of reality to them you know what i mean well, two things I want to add to that. One is I noticed in this article the conflation of ethics and morals. Yes. And those are different things. Because if you're talking about a moral standard, then that's going to be different than basic ethics. And it seemed to maybe grab that from, say, a religion or when it spoke of, like, why is it immoral to be gay or, like, something like that was, like, the answer. And then uh, secondly, I just want to say I found that incredibly interesting when the one of the other questions was fa- phrased as well, if it makes me happy, does that make it ethical or mm-hmm. something? I found that funny, and it seemed to be almost like a leftist kind of response, which is like, if it, if it makes you feel good, then it must be good um, overall. Yeah. And yeah, also, I just want to say, and also, I just want to say, when you say align yourself with reality, I think that's absolutely important because otherwise, you end up in a progressive ideology situation where you might have some really um, abstract, interesting ideas, but when those policies are implemented, it doesn't necessarily create the good that you set out to do. Yes. So if you if you have good intentions, right, uh, your intentions may be ethical, but maybe the way you're going about trying to realize them is not and is not going to result in such. And um, yeah, I agree with you in terms of the trolley problem is trying to avoid that situation like yeah. As, and it's and it's a useful can, yeah. it's a useful like playground 
to kind of and it's and it's definitely good for the um the construction of class you know interesting i've written i, I wrote a piece a while ago kind of breaking down the problems with the in, the implicit uh, association test which everybody uses to justify unconscious bias which i i think technically speaking doesn't exist i think you could have a subconscious bias but not an unconscious one um but uh, but but specific to it is one of the creators of the test has spoke about how he actually thinks of what he created as something that's worthy of creating a dialogue. And I think in some instances, like we might say uh, an academic setting or a classroom where it's like, hey, man, we're going to take the we're going to take the gates off. Right. This is this is this is this is the uh, this is the platonic form of the university setting, if you will. But it's like, you know, we're going to take the gates off. Anything goes. We're going to talk about anything in a completely open way. And I do believe there's a place for that. In fact, I spent a long time in that place myself. What I've learned, and this is the important part, is what I learned, though, is the nece- is the need for that, like I say, that grounding in reality, that ali- trying to align yourself as best you can with the uh, with everything that's going on around you. And it's that, and it's literally, it's literally that which makes you know, which, which makes reality too, in effect, because when you actually, when you align yourself with reality and you act in accordance with it, you then create a better reality for other people. Because in my estimation, reality is mediated through the individual as Nietzsche would say, or Nietzsche put it, that's my interpretation of Nietzsche. So it's, so it's this never ending cycle. The other thing as it relates to AI, because of course AI is all about the future and how robots are going to replace us and this stuff. I think this shows a little bit of a, what this shows a little bit of with this with this AI business is still the limits of AI. Now, personally, and I'm interested I'm interested in hearing your thoughts, Rachel, is um, personally I am not somebody I, I could see AI even taking away like some law work, right? Because I've read articles about how AI can actually classify and go through discovery and things like that better than like a first year law student might. So there might be fields disrupted by AI that we can't, that we wouldn't predict just looking at it. But I'm still just not, I'm not bullish on the idea that AI is the thing that will ultimately replace us because of precisely these kinds of situations. I do think there's something, you know, dare I say something spiritual to the human form, to the human experience that exists beyond, outside of the bounds of this narrow, Oh gosh, this narrow stricture of of a of a programmed AI. And of course, I think an AI is only going to be as good as the programmers behind it, just like a human, you know, intelligence is only as good as the programmers behind it. Right? If you're raised with very poor moral structures or or you know, very, you know, if you don't have if you don't have any sense of consequence, right? Let's jump to the easy, let's swipe up as as they say or um, not swipe up, uh, punch up as they say. You know, let's talk about that trust fund kid. Right. That the trust fund rich kid who's like who's a degenerate because everybody loves to, to pick on them, not because not because they're a degenerate, but because they're a rich degenerate. And so you can you 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 expect them because they are rich to be better than you in a sense. And and there's this degree to which, you know, if you look at a degenerate trust fund kid, I think you might find, I don't know, absent parents or maybe dead parents right where they didn't have and and certainly if you have an unlimited supply of money and you don't learn things like budgeting and basic finance you don't understand that the world has consequences because perhaps the world has never had consequences for you and so that's what i mean when i say I, just just as a general point this isn't like a definitive argument against ai potentially having problems that's not my point it what, what but what do you think about that 
I think honestly, at this point, with the rate that people are running out and getting their boosters voluntarily, is that humanity would be lucky to survive long enough to be replaced by AI hmm. if they have not destroyed themselves <laughs> before that point. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair that's a fair comeback. I think I would say that I think we're I think we've always been closer to that destroying ourselves than we ever really want yeah. to admit. And then also, I, so here's the thing: is I understand what you mean about a certain spiritual compo- component, or perhaps there's a level of creativity within the human being that that can't be replaced by AI, even if AI is creating artwork or you know pumping out uh, music or whatever based on algorithms. I think that um, there's a certain level of economic economic Darwinism to it, mm-hmm. which is why I tend to think of religion quite a bit because um, I understand, because here's, here's the thing with like the displacement idea. And even if there are, I think that even if humans can't necessarily be replaced by AI in every practical sense, I don't think that prevents anyone from still trying to do so anyway and i also think that um in terms of that economic darwinism that's the thing is like when i when i think of something like religion i think of it in a sort of symbiotic sense that the religion will say to a human being you have value as long as you also perpetrate this religion Mm -hmm. and and it kind of values the human being existing versus if you look at things from a strictly efficient sense right if i get i suppose if you value creativity less or things like that and you look at production from a strictly efficient lens why wouldn't you replace a human with AI, right Mm -hmm. so it's like that's where i kind of i kind of see that in the future and i want to turn that boat around not because i think traditionalism is everything or that i'm a ludite per se i just think that there's this inevitable end point to where that technological advancement is headed and right we're it's not like it's not like oh you know hey human beings will be freed up to pursue higher ideals and we'll all be better for it you know it's it's a little bit like um i think that's the utopian fantasy i think the reality of the situation is we're still expected to compete with each other and we're we're still expected to produce it's not like you know we're we're suddenly going to be left alone uh, I just see like this weird displacement with UBI mm-hmm. in a sense. And oh, then yeah. people sort of people lose their purpose and their meaning through that struggle and through that um, fulfillment of things that challenge them. So yeah. I think it's sold to us. I know I'm sorry, I'm taking a while, but no. I think I think AI displacing us is sold to us as like some kind of liberation mm-hmm. when I think it's just further enslavement. No, I think I think you bring up a great point. And I think this is part of this critique of the enlightenment that's been happening so much in, in these circles, namely that um, namely that, you know, in this and you can see this in, in the early socialists as well. They believe this fully which was, you know, if we just change the basic structures of, you know, if we just free man from his from his mundane obligations of tilling the field, what have you, making money, you know, providing, then he will become the philosopher. And certainly, I think we live in a time where anybody who wants to take this path with me, right, of like walking down and exploring ideas, you actually have the ability to more than you ever have. But again, this is that important point of the praxis, an important point of the application is, 
I've also come to accept that many people don't want that. And then there's the and then the dangerous people are the ones who don't want that, but also um uh but but also will uh what's it called? How how would I say this? Are the people who don't want to walk the path of the philosopher, but maybe, or who or rather who can't walk it, but think that they're doing it. Those are the people who are most dangerous. Those are the sophists. Well, those are the sophists. Those are the uh, the Pharisees, not the Pharisees, but. And I think of the, the, you know, that, that article that was taken down, I think from the world economic forum, the year is 2030. I own nothing and I'm happy. And mm-hmm. this person lives in a smart city and they kind of describe the people who live outside the outskirts of the smart city that refuse to participate. And there's a sense of pity for them. And it reminds me of like that brave new world concept of the savages, yep, right? Yep. Yep. That you yep. only get Philip to maintain. If you guys haven't yeah, seen electric do Android stream electric sleep on, um, on the series that, that Amazon put out, I highly recommend it. You're going to watch it and be like, okay, when was he writing this? Oh, okay, because this is like literally, na- this is going to be 2024. In particular, I'm thinking of episode six, where you have the people, kind of a similar thing to what you were talking about with the Brave New World and the Savages. And then there's another one where um, where they have, or no, I think this was Doctor Who, where the, the company was very proud to be 50% human staffed because AI had been replaced everything. But, um, Wait. mm-hmm. Which I just want to say one more point, which is real funny, because I've spoken with my boyfriend about this, and he's like, oh, people people just don't understand libertarian philosophy, and they, they just misconstrue it. They think that libertarianism means being you know, a radical individual in the woods, and I kind of want to joke with him and say, well, it kind of is in the context of where things are going. <laughs> like, sure, yeah. Maybe not by default. I mean, kind of by default in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, removing you're gonna yourself excluded. in that way. Yeah. Right. Well, I did know – so. Josh, I did see you in here and I saw that you were requesting. Sam, you're also requesting. So I'm going to wrap this thing in a few minutes. But if you guys wanted to ask a question or make a comment, I want this to be participatory. So, um, Josh, if you want to request, uh, I'm going to invite you to speak as well. But Sam, feel free if you wanted to react to what you were hearing. Hearing, thanks for stopping by. I don't know if we interacted too much, but welcome. Hey, well, uh, thanks for letting me talk. But uh, it's funny because about five minutes ago, I was thinking to myself, because uh, I was looking into, like, old religions on Wikipedia, and I was thinking to myself, like, the people that create AI, I think are just evil at this point. Or not evil, but I think they're foolish, too. Mm. Like, yeah. thinking that they can recreate some sort of god. Yeah, no, I th- well, and if you look at Ray Kurzweil, <laughs> Ray Kurzweil, the futurist, literally is trying to, uh, literally is trying to defeat death, right? So I think I, I think there is I, I would agree with you that there is a great hubris in these kinds of people. And I think that's a delicate balance in that the people with the greatest hubris are can can accomplish the worst or the best things for humanity. You know, Nietzsche has the line about um about the greatest men of history have often done the worst things or some of the worst things were created for the good of humanity or something, something profound like that. I'm not doing it justice. Josh, what's up, my man? Uh, it's going well. And, and not only some of the greatest crimes committed by perpetrated by people were done uh, in the name of humanity, but those people thought they were doing good. Hitler never thought he was evil. Stalin never thought he was evil. They were doing the greater good. But you can, uh, in related news, you can already see what is occurring when people don't have a purpose and a mission. You know, I'm a veteran. Look at all the other veterans and what's the number one complaint that veterans have when they come back and they separate. I don't have a purpose anymore. I don't have a mission anymore. 
and you got 22 veterans a day on average that are committing suicide. That's the future. Yeah, no, I think I think that actually the veteran point is great because not only, not only with the uh, with the veterans, not only is it the case that um, that they've had that they had a purpose, right? Literally in the military, as, as I don't I don't need to tell you that you're oh you're given a mission. Like when you if you deploy or really anything you do, your job is a mission. There's there are things that you have to accomplish. It's very clearly delineated. And when you exist inside of that structure, and now you have to try and find something outside of that military structure. Yeah, I mean that's I think that's I think that's a great point. So awesome. I love it. Well, this is fun. I really appreciate people popping in. Like I said, uh, I've said this a few times. I will be doing these more often. You can catch the replay of this. If you want to catch the other stories that we covered, we didn't talk only about AI today. We also discussed, um, what the hell did I talk about? I just did it. We talked about the supply chain with the Atlantic saying, don't buy stuff anymore. And then we talked a little bit about, uh, I kind of gave my basic thoughts about what I think about Trump's new social media network. So we did that. I'm going to try to do little news stories like this every day. Love the idea of this being participatory. So if you want to send recommendations my way, feel free. Um, obviously follow me on Twitter, but really go to my Substack at binawake.com and that would be fantastic. Um, uh, Rachel, if you want to go ahead and plug away and then we'll get out of here. Oh, thank you. Um, well, you can find me on Twitter, Rachel D. Tobias on Twitter. I don't really have anything else for now. Uh, but thank you so much for having me. And this is pretty cool. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm like, I've been waiting for the Spaces thing to launch on Android because I'm an Android user. <laughs> I've been waiting to be able to do these because I loved the Clubhouse thing. and I, But I never really got into it. And this is, I think... Uh, this is a fun way to kind of generate some content that I think is, like I said, kind of news focused. So if you guys want to be able to do your plugs and make sure you come earlier in the stream next time. So keep an eye out on Twitter and feel free to ask me questions, interact. The community thing is always very important, even if it's virtual. So with that, I will let you guys go for the night and I hope you all have a lovely evening. Oh, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. We got bumper music. Tell me if you hear the bumper music. 